Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. The two women bowed, not in real reverence, but out of deference. As they kneeled, they looked at each other and locked eyes. It was a quick but knowing glance. They knew this time was coming and they had prepared for it. Months ago, the king had summoned them, hissing his horrific demand. When they or one of the nurses in their charge went on their prenatal visit, to a pregnant Hebrew woman, they were to use the Egyptian medicine they had learned so well to determine the baby's gender. If the unborn baby was a girl, she could live. But if it was a boy, they were to administer one of the Egyptian potions that had proven so effective at abortion. These two women knew what the king was up to. The brutal slave labor had not done what the paranoid king had expected. Rather than thinning out the foreign people who had saved his nation 400 years prior, the people were multiplying. And he couldn't just destroy them all at once because he needed their labor to build his empire. And so slavery was giving way to slaughter. But these women had devoted their lives to the giver of life. And so this king would not make them instruments of death. In the last few months, they had delivered dozens of babies, including many boys. And each newborn infant roar had been like a rallying cry, growing their resolve. And each time another child was born, they had rehearsed what they would say in this very moment. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Good morning. My name's Christian, if we haven't met. I am the lead pastor here, and today we are beginning a new series. We're beginning our journey through the book of Exodus. And so if you want, you can turn in the Bible in front of you or your device if you've got a Bible with you. But we'll, we'll be in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, um, but, but I'm excited to get to jump into this with you all. We're making our way through the book of Exodus, and it's a true story If you've never read it, or you may have some familiarity, most of us have heard something about the Exodus. Maybe you've seen the Charlton Heston movie, Ten Commandments, or you've seen the Prince of Egypt, Spielberg animated movie, right? You know something of this story, but it's a true story that makes good movies because it reads like a tall tale. It kind of makes you think, hey, this, this almost may be too good to be true, but it's a story of deliverance. But just as with the birth of a child... Delivery follows labor, 
That's what we're going to see. Exodus tells the true story of the birth of God's people. Okay? Big picture, Exodus tells the true story of the birth of God's people. This is a birth story. That's what we're looking at over the course of, of many weeks is how are the people of God born in the midst of this specific situation they find themselves in. So before we jump into that, join me. I'm going to pray, and then, then we'll get going. Father, we thank you for the true story of what you have done in time and space, in history, among real people, in real situations. I pray that you would help us to understand what you're working so many years ago, what that has to do with what we're going through today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us insight. You allow us to know you and to, to understand what it looks like to walk with you. We thank you for the people who have gone before us to make that possible. We pray that you would give us insight that we need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said, Exodus tells the true story of the birth of God's people. Years later, after even many of the, most of the events that we'll read about in the Exodus, many years later, as Moses, the, the chief human character in this story, dealt with the burden of leadership, he complained to God. It wasn't the only time Moses complained to God. He's a good man, but he had his faults. And the, the burden of leadership, if you've ever experienced that, right, just leading other people, much less millions in Moses' case, that burden weighed heavy on him. And so at one point he complains to God, Numbers chapter 11, listen to the, the way he complains. He says in verse 12, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that you swore to give to their ancestors? The implication here, right, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, God, you're the one who did this. You're the one who conceived of this people. You're the one who gave birth to this people. Moses understands that he is a deliverer in the sense that he is helping deliver this people, make, helping see them be born. And so it's with that in mind that we jump in to Exodus chapter 1. Verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel. Who came to Egypt with Jacob, each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, there's a lot of things, and I'm not going to get into every detail, but there's, it's very clear from the way this initial, this book gets started, this story gets started, the way it's told, this is a clear continuation of the book of Genesis. This is the sequel. Okay, Genesis is the book of origins. It tells us how things have come about, that God is behind it all. Before there was anything, there is God. He is, has no beginning, no end. And he brings about this, this people. And, and what Genesis does is it, it had laid out what we were to expect going forward. And very simply put, what we were to expect was a people in a specific place 
enjoying God's presence and his rule in their lives. That's, that's the big picture story of what is God up to. He's up to creating a people in a place living in his presence, enjoying his presence. And so here, as we get into the first part of Exodus, we find a special people who is following God's original command. You go all the way back when humanity is first created and God gives them a command. The command was, be fruitful and multiply. And so here the language is, they're being fruitful and multiplying. But there's something missing. They're in the wrong place. They're in Egypt. Egypt isn't Canaan. Canaan was the promised land, and they're not there. They're in Egypt. And at this point, it's been 400 years. This is what it's talking about Joseph and Jacob. 400 years since Joseph had died, since they had come to Egypt. And, and so they have to be wondering, not only are we in the wrong place, but where's God? And I wonder, maybe that's how you're feeling today. Maybe you've shown up this morning. Again, we're excited. Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. Okay, that's good. We're, that's great. Super excited about that. But nonetheless, you know, while there's some good things going on, nonetheless, you, you kind of feel like, you know, I just feel kind of out of place. And, and furthermore, not everything's, maybe not everything's bad, but, but maybe you're wondering, where is God? Right? Where is God in the midst of what's going on in my life? How does he factor in to my life? And so as we'll see, the Bible really has a lot to say about not just what was going on in the lives of the Israelites back then, but what is happening in your life here and now today. And as we'll see, God's people, they were born in bondage. But as the story goes, we'll see not only were they born in bondage, but they are bound for deliverance. Okay? And so what we're talking about is a journey to freedom. That, that's what the Exodus tells us. It, it's a journey to freedom, out of bondage and to a certain kind of freedom. And even that, as we'll see, you have to define those a little differently. But we'll get there eventually. What I want us to see is that in the Israelites' journey to freedom, as we make our way through this story, through this book, through this true tale, that in the Israelites' journey to freedom, we find answers to questions that guide our own. These are big questions that show up throughout the book of Exodus. And these questions are meant to guide our own journey to freedom. I want you to hear that. God really does want you to live in the right kind of freedom. He really does want you to experience freedom. There's, there's a certain kind of freedom that he really has for you, no matter what, where you've been, where you are today, what you're thinking, walking in here this morning. God really does want you to know freedom. And so these questions are meant to guide us. Exodus goes on, verse 8, we're told, a new king who did not know about Joseph, or, or maybe had conveniently forgot, came to power in Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. 
But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Here's the first question that gets raised as we look at the plight of the people of Israel at this point in their history. The question is this, and it's a question all of us have to wrestle with as we think about what it means to know and walk with God. Is The question is this, can anything stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? Can anything stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? If you are determined to walk with Jesus, if you're, if, if you're determined to, to live the Christian life, then you will again and again and again bump up against this question. Will anything stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? You have to ask, well, what are the promises? What, what kind of promises do I need to be paying attention to? The immediate promises that the Israelites had to be wondering, right? They, could, they didn't have to go very, back very far, now 400 years, but even Joseph had given them some sense, okay? Joseph was raised up through these incredible circumstances to become second in power in Egypt. This is how the Israelites made their way there. It was during a, a time of great famine. You can go back into the latter parts of the book of Genesis and read that full story. But, but there's this famine that happens, and, and God uses this man Joseph to really save the known world, including the people of Israel. And now they found their, themselves in Egypt. And so, But at the end of his life, Joseph makes this statement. It's really interesting. He, he sees something is coming. And we're told in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, he says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So notice that. He, he's anticipating there's going to be problems. At the point that Joseph's dying, like, everything's good. They've got a land. They're, they're doing well. They've survived this famine. Things look pretty good. But Joseph anticipates a day is coming when things won't be so good. And we'll get to why he has that anticipation in a second. But, but he's reminding them, look, a day's coming when you're going to need God's help. And you know what? God's going to be there. He's going to take care of you. And he goes on. It says, Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, not if, but when God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. See, Joseph recognized there is this problem. We are the people, but we're not in the right place. As good as things are, we're not in the right place. He says, so when God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. And then it says, Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Now, this is really interesting because Joseph dies. He's not in the right place, but he dies in the land of the experts in death. You know, if you know anything about Egypt or Egyptians, you know they're really good when it comes to death, right? They had all these ideas about what is, what is life after death going to be like. And so they became experts in mummification, in preserving bodies, thinking that was their hope, that there could be something beyond this life. And so their kings, they buried them in these giant tombs, including pyramids, with the hope and the expectation that they would have more in the life to come, but that their preservation of this body was, was crucial. And so Joseph benefits a little bit from the, the expertise of his day. And he says, look, I, I can count on God will come through in this promise. And so be prepared. 
when you guys march out, you're going to you gotta have some extra luggage. You're going to have to carry my coffin with you because we're going back to the promised land. So, so Joseph knew to expect this, that something would happen at some point. But, but really, Joseph's reminder of the promise goes way farther back. In fact, we can go back all the way to the time when humanity is broken, when, when our first parents rebelled against the good rule and presence of God and brought put everything into disarray, and they had help, an enemy, a serpent-like enemy who lured them and, and caused them to then, I mean, help them make the choice that they made themselves to rebel, to go against the, the command of God. And this brought all the problems that we have today. In the aftermath of though, God is gracious. And though there is judgment, there's promise. And so he says in Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, I will put, he was talking to this, this enemy serpent like leader, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, somebody comes and whacks you in the head or somebody comes and whacks you on the heel, which of those would you prefer? Probably your heel, right? Somebody hits me on my heel, it can hurt. You know, I had a kid that was... We, anyway, doesn't matter. I, doesn't matter. Sometimes you just got to go, no, not that one. But, yeah, you get hit in the, the, the foot, the leg, whatever. I mean, that, that's not fun, but, but that's not that bad. But somebody strikes you in the head, it can be deadly. And that's the contrast here. There, there will be a wound, but there will be one who will crush the head of this serpent. And so the people of God were to be anticipating a deliverer who would come and eventually would strike a fatal blow to that serpent. That's the promise. A deliverer is coming. And so from then on, even Eve herself has a, another child later on. And she expects, oh, this is the one. This is the deliverer. But the deliverer was coming. There, there would be hints that, of what that deliverer could look like. But the people are expecting. God has promised to deliver. Where, where is he? Where, where is he going to be? When is he going to show up? That was a promise, though. It's coming. Later, God makes another promise to a man named Abram, who would become known as Abraham. He says, you're not just a father anymore, Abraham. Ab Abram. You're now Abraham. You're the father of a multitude. I'm going to make a great promise. He makes a great promise with him that all of his people... I mean, that, that there would be this great family that would come from him. That God would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth through this one man. Later, as Abram is getting older and he's wondering, God, are you going to make good on this promise? And, and Abram kind of takes matters into his own hands and begins sort of scheming in, in the best way, trying to figure out, well, what do I need to do? Because they didn't know all the things we know about biology back then, but they knew, you know, you get a little older, this doesn't happen quite as easily. And so... Abram's starting to get worried. Is God going to come through on his promise? Genesis 15, God comes and speaks to Abram in the midst of his, his plans. And he says to Abram, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And God took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to, them, said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And it says, and this is, 
This is a key statement for just what it even means to, to know God at all. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the Christian life in a nutshell, friends. We're told this in the New Testament. What Abram did on that day as God showed him the starry night sky was the same thing you and I do today. Make no mistake, don't, don't get this wrong, Christian life, Christian, if you want to call it a religion, fine. But, but to be a Christian is not to get your act together and eventually get to a spot where God goes, okay, you did it, good job. You, you, you crossed the bar, good enough, okay. No, the Christian life is about doing what Abram did right here. It's to believe the Lord and to receive his righteousness as a result of trusting him, not of you building your own life of good things. The good things come in gratitude to what God does as we trust him. That's what Abram does. But then hear more of the promise. This is the big, big promise here in this first part of chapter 15. But then later in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. And will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why did Joseph know that they were going to need the deliverance of God? That they were going to need God to come through for them? Because he had told them. Hundreds of years before, he had called his shot. God had said, look, a time is coming when you'll think, I, I'm not there, that, that this thing is over, that's done with. No, no, no. Let me, let me make this promise even more clear. I'm going to bring you out of that. You're going to go through it, but you're coming out of it. And so these are the promises that undergird this situation as we come to it and we wonder, can anything Stand in the way of God carrying out his promises. We've got to wonder. Because again, they're not where they're supposed to be. But we get a hint. God's not done with them. God's on the move. He's doing something here. But again, you wonder. Because you look and you see, well, there's this king. And, and man, he's really powerful. And he's got a lot going on for himself. And, and, and he even sees himself as shrewd, it says in chapter 1, verse 10. And this pharaoh, this Egyptian king, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. And so he's determined to show everybody just how smart he is. But he doesn't just fashion himself. He's not just arrogant. He's also paranoid. And so here's these people who are, who are growing up and they're multiplying, but they have no desire to be a threat to Egypt. But he doesn't understand that. And so he sees their multiplication as this great threat. And his paranoia then leads to hatred, it says. The, the Egyptians, now there's this national divide where the Egyptians hate the Hebrews. They dread the Hebrews. Why? Because of anything that they've actually done? No. Just because of this one man's tyranny and his paranoia and his leadership then is leading to this grand divide. And what's the result? Well, for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, it says he, he makes their lives bitter, just a, just a little note here. If you're a leader of, of any, and all of us have some kind of influence in other people's lives, right? The goal is that as a result of your influence in their lives, life gets sweeter. If you're a parent, 
That's your goal, is that your kids' lives are sweeter because of your leadership in their lives. If you're an employer or you got people who work for you, the goal is that, yeah, you got stuff to get done, but their lives should be sweeter, not bitter. Not bitter because of your influence, but that's what's going on through this Pharaoh. Really, when you look at him, he has all the makings, all the characteristics of that same serpent that brought about humanity's enslavement in the first place. And as we go through, we'll see that same kind of character playing out again and again and again throughout the course of human history, especially here in the book of Exodus, but all throughout the scriptures. So that's the first question. Can anything stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? The second question is, does everyday courage really matter? Does it really matter that I live for what's right? That I show courage in doing what's right? I started this morning walking you through using a little bit of, of hopefully redeemed imagination to to talk about and think about these midwives. Their names are Shifra and Pua. I know they don't roll off the tongue in our Western 21st century way. We make it a habit of like naming kids after, you know, great men and women of the Bible that, that shows up. I haven't met many Shifras or Puas, okay? And that's unfortunate because these are incredible women, so if you're looking for a baby name, I don't know, give us some consideration. <laughs> but I started there because these midwives, they're pivotal in this whole story. These two women are pivotal, but they're not alone. In one of the great ironies of all the, the whole Bible, three other women, including the Pharaoh's own daughter, display unusual wisdom and courage. And God uses these five women, the two midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and the Pharaoh's daughter. He uses these five women to undermine this king's plans. It's, it's an incredible deal because they're willing to trust God and act courageously. And again, the, the smartest man in the room who th- sees himself as so shrewd gets outsmarted by these women. And what's the result? It's not just the preservation of males, though that's significant. The king is attacking. He could have just said, well, okay, I don't want any more babies at all. I don't want any more Israelites at all. Why does he just kill the males? Well, because in that culture, in part, I mean, there's a lot more going on here, but but really, they're the threat. It's not just that they're the threat. It's that, that the males are the one in whom the future is seen. And it's not just like we need to weed out the population and and cut off the chance for further reproduction. That's not the only thing going on. The Pharaoh's trying to make a statement. You can't mess with me. I will crush you. I will crush your hopes for the future. He's trying to emphatically just make them want to quit and go away or just keep doing the things that he's asking, making them do. But the result... So the result of this, these courageous acts is not just the preservation of males, though that is incredibly significant. But more than that, God, from that preservation, brings the birth of a deliverer, 
who had himself been delivered. Listen to what it, how Moses is described, chapter 2, verse 10. When the child grew older, this is after he had been rescued from the waters by Pharaoh's daughter, and then had been, the way God worked this out, he gets raised in, as a young child by his own mother, who's his wet nurse, but then he's brought back, it says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so here's Moses, this Hebrew boy who was supposed to be exterminated, who now is being raised in the home of the king who had set out to kill him. And really, he's being raised as the king's son or, or grandson. It's an incredible turn of events. This baby who had been put into the chaotic waters is rescued from the waters in what is literally called an ark. So you think, oh, it's a basket. Yeah, but literally the word is an ark. Just as God had rescued his people once before in an ark, he's now rescuing them again as somebody's rescued through an ark. The deliverer had first been delivered. Listen to how the story goes on. Verse 11, it says, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of, his, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. And when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. This is the third question. Is God going to come through on his promises? Does everyday courage really matter? Here's the third question. Are grave failures final? All of us will ask, are grave failures final? Is that the end of the story? And that's what we have to wonder as we look at what's going on with Moses here. It seemed like everything was set up in, perfect, in the perfect spot. Here's Moses. He's the deliverer. He's the one with special influence to change the Pharaoh, to change how this is all going down. I mean, it, it seems just, I mean, God ordained, like it couldn't get any better, right? He's planted the agent of change within the household of Pharaoh. Surely this guy's got the influence that's needed. And now, in a moment of, of lack of con control and rage, Moses has seemed to throw it all away. Because instead of breaking up, well, I mean, it was right to, to address the injustice that was going on, he goes too far. And now he has to flee. Now the one who had been raised as a, a son of the king, as a prince of Egypt, is now on the run. He's an outlaw. And so, again, we wonder, right? I mean, he's lost this privilege that we thought would be so crucial to making this happen. And so we got to wonder, will God make good on his promise? 
I mean, if, if this doesn't throw a wrench in, everything, in anything, then what will? I mean, this, it seems like all is done. But it seems like, at the same time, the story goes on. He flees to Midian. He meets a group of sisters who have gone out to a well to, to just water. They do this on the regular. But there's also a regular thing happens when they go out to the well. To the well, they're, they're given trouble of some kind by some local shepherds. So much so that their, their father, when they return early, is surprised because he expected it to take longer. He expected them to be hassled or have to maybe do, maybe had to, they had to serve the shepherds and, and feed all their, or water all their flocks before they could get to what they needed to do for their own family. And so their dad's surprised, like, why are you guys back? And it turns out, well, because this guy Moses has showed up on the scene. And once again, he's come across injustice. But this time, he's, he's learned a little bit. Because he doesn't kill anybody. <laughs> but you got to wonder, is it too little too late? And here's how this part of the story concludes. Verse 23, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So there's those three questions that will guide our journey to freedom, but I want you to hear emphatically, just like the Israelites, if you cry out in your own bondage, you can count on God's attention and God's action. You can count on God. I'm going to go back to those last two verses, verse 24, 25, and I want you to, to take note of this because details in, in Hebrew, when the Hebrews write, okay, they, they're very careful about certain details. Four times God's name is listed. This isn't just like a, something somebody just added in, you're just for what, no, nobody really knows what reason. No, four times specifically God's name is repeated. Right, so, so if you read this in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say, well, God heard and, and remembered and saw and knew. Four times it's being repeated. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. The emphasis is on God. He's present. We, thought, we, we saw a little glimpse that maybe he's involved when it says that he rewarded those midwives as a result of their courage. But this is the first time he's really shown up so far. And when he shows up, it's emphatic. God's involved. And notice, he hears and he sees. He's paying attention. He hears their cry. He sees them. He knows what's going on. But then he's also acting. It says he remembered his covenant. That doesn't mean he's senile and, and sometimes remembers and sometimes doesn't. No, the, the remembering here is that he, he brings to bear. He, he, he remembers, he recalls it and does something about it. He's got this covenant, this promise that he's made. It's greater than a promise. We'll see more about covenant as we go through. He made these promises again and again and again with Abraham and then with Isaac and with Jacob, and he's bringing that to bear. He's acting in response to those promises. And it says God knew. Knew what? Why does he have to know if he already saw and heard? No, what it's saying is God knew what he was up to. God knew what he was going to do. Remember, he called his shot hundreds of years prior, Genesis 15. 
This isn't a surprise to God. God isn't coming upon this going, oh, man, this thing is spinning out of control. I better, I better get something figured out because this could get really bad. No, God knew. God's there all along working in the course of human events, bringing about his purposes. So we ask again, can anything stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? Can world events, where we see injustice day after day after day, can that stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? Can boneheaded leadership at local and national and international levels, can that stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? Can your history, your family, your upbringing, your background, whatever it is, can that stand in the way of God carrying out his promises? The emphatic answer here and all through Scripture is no. No. Does everyday courage really matter? Does it really matter that you courageously choose what is right before God versus just going with the flow? the way you always have done things. Does that kind of courage really matter? Does it really matter that you would be honest in your dealings with people, whether at work or in the community? Does it really matter that you don't cut the corners that everybody else cuts? Does that kind of courage actually make a difference? Does it really matter that you would adopt God's view on, on really hard issues like sexuality? Does it really matter that you would stand the line and go, look, I'm not trying to create something of my own making. I'm just trying to be faithful to what God has clearly stated. Does that kind of courage actually matter? You and I may not, are probably never going to be called upon to stare down a king like Pua and Shifra were. But nonetheless... Does our everyday courage actually make a difference? The answer is yes. And our grave failure is final. Again, you may walk through those doors today going, all right, I guess I'll give church a chance. Not really having much expectation, but what can it hurt? I've already made such a mess of things. Is that the end? Is that the final word on your life? Maybe you're here, you're like, hey, look, I come every week, but it doesn't seem like I'm making much progress. It, doesn't, it seems like I'm just stuck in the same place. These failures, I don't know that I can ever really get past them. Are these grave failures final? The repeated answer again and again and again is no. Not because of how great you are, but because of how great God is. Why do I know that? Why do I know that? Because a better deliverer has come. Galatians 4 says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time came, when the time was right, God knew God understood, he saw, he heard, he acted. And another deliverer was born in the wake of a tyrannical king. Another deliverer was, was helped forward by the courage of women. You say, well, how do I get in on that? 
How do I get to have what Jesus did make a difference for me? That deliver was very clear. John 3, he said, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the tale of the birth of a nation. But God has born a people. He, he births a people by giving new birth to people. By making them new in Jesus. And you're made new by recognizing that you are enslaved on your own. And only is Jesus able to deliver you from that. And he is sufficient and good and great and able to do that. The two men knelt in reverence. The time was upon them when they and their families would leave this land. But before they did, they would repeat this ritual one last time here in Egypt. They were only breathing and and able because years ago, the true and only king had worked mightily. The generations of family that were gathered with them were only there because that no-name Serpent-like king had been defeated. And though another had risen up to take his place, they believed his time was coming to an end as well. And so as God allowed, they would make sure that their grandmothers, whose names mean beautiful and splendid, were remembered. They were born in bondage. But thanks to those two women... And the God they trusted, they were bound for delivery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this true, tall tale. We thank you that you've made possible through Jesus for our story to be bound up in your story. I pray that today would be a day of deliverance for those who are in bondage. I pray for those who have known the freedom that comes with Christ, but maybe you're just struggling with with wanting to go back into that slavery that, Lord, you would help remind us just how good a deliverer you are, how good it is to walk closely with you. Help us to learn to trust you and understand life from your angle. We ask for your help in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.